Well, we continue on with our fall series on the book of Job. And uh, last week we looked at the remarkable declarations of faith which came out of Job's mouth while he was experiencing the intensity of his sufferings. However, we need to note that in a full 20 chapters of Job's speeches, we found barely a handful of verses where Job is expressing faith in God. It was there, but it wasn't exactly thriving. Job passed the test, but I don't think he got an A+. Today we come to God's long rebuke of Job, which spans Job 38, 39, 40, and 41. And we're so blessed to have this rebuke. Certainly it's one of the great passages of the Old Testament. Job, though, is not the only one who needs to hear it. We all do. The conversation between Job and his friends, whatever we have to say about their attitudes and their arguments, is a masterpiece of literature. But now, at the end of it all, suddenly, it's all completely overshadowed by a speech so majestic, so powerful, so profound, that all the speeches before it suddenly seem trivial shallow and insignificant. This is the moment Job's been waiting for, begging for. He's wanted to hear from God. He's decried God's silence in the midst of his agony. He knows that his friends are wrong in their conclusions about the reason for his sufferings, that they are, must be the result of some secret wicked living in Job. But he has no alternative explanation. So he's kind of haunted by this feeling that God is oppressing him unjustly. Afflicting him for no good reason. He insinuates injustice in God. And then God speaks. And when God speaks, God really speaks Four chapters of poignant, piercing questions. In fact, at one point in the middle of the four chapters, Job tries unsuccessfully to get God to stop. Now, this speech of God's is so long, we can't read the whole thing or it would take up our whole time. So we read the beginning and I'll walk you through summarizing and giving you highlights so that you have a good taste of what it's all about. We begin in Job 38, 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you. And you make it known to me. 
We know this is going to be good by the way God shows up. He doesn't show up in a limousine. He shows up in a storm. And this is often how God shows up when he wants to make a big impression. And then God says, who is this? As if he doesn't know. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In other words, who is this who is obscuring the truth by using words even though he doesn't know what he's talking about? And then God tells Job in verse 3 to get ready. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you answer me. If God ever speaks to you in that way, you can bet it's not going to be pretty. (laughs) Dress for action like a man. I'm going to ask you some questions. You give the answers. And then God begins the questions. Verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined the earth's measurements, Job? Surely you know. Who stretched out the measuring line to make sure it was the right size? And then God moves from focusing on the earth to focusing on the sea in verse 10. Job, who set limits on the sea? Who told the mighty waves to come this far and no farther? And then he moves on to rain and storms and precipitation. Who aims the lightning bolts, Job? Can you send for them and do they report to you and say, here we are? Who sends rain to uninhabited lands so that the grass can grow there? Do you do that, Job? Are you the one who brings forth rain and dew? Can you shout to the clouds and make them send a drenching rain? Were you the one who gave birth to the ice and the frost of heaven, Job? Now, obviously all of this is very pointed and laden with sarcasm. Declare it if you know all this, Job. You must know, for you were born then, right, Job? You were around then when these things were created, right, Job? For the number of your days is so great. Then the Lord points to the stars. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion, Job? Can you lead forth the constellations in their season? Who has put the wisdom in the inward parts of man? Who gives understanding to his mind? Was it you, Job? And Job, who provides food for the lions to eat? Or the young ravens when they cry out in hunger and wander around for lack of food. Do you do that, Job? Now the obvious answer to all these questions is it's God. 
He's the one who does all these things, not Job. But the point of these questions is to remind Job that he is not, in fact, God. Was it you, Job? Wasn't it me? I've said before that the first two principles of Christian theology are, one, there is a God, and two, you are not him. And this is what God is teaching Job. Job, I am God. You are not. And it's a lesson we all need to learn. Because though we are so limited in our knowledge and in our power, we are unlimited in our ability to arrogantly put ourselves in the place of God in our own minds and utter words which reflect that arrogance. And that's just Job 38. In chapter 39, the Lord goes on to ask more questions of Job, this time about various remarkable animals. Questions about the birthing of mountain goats, questions about the roaming patterns of wild donkeys, questions about the impossibility of domesticating the wild ox, questions about the strange habits of ostriches, questions about the impressive bravery of the war horse, questions about how hawks and eagles fly and hunt. Who has given the arid plain to the wild donkey as his home, Job? Is the wild ox willing to spend his night in your manger, Job? Do you give the horse his might? Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up? And then in Job 40... The Lord, if you can imagine, turns up the heat. The Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. There are people, you know, in our lives, and maybe even in ourselves, who always seem to notice what's wrong with things. And they're always critiquing things and and sharing their critiques with the people around them. They are fault finders. And though they can be irritating at times, they have a role to play. We need sometimes to see the faults of things. But will a fault finder have the audacity to critique God himself? That's the question that God is asking. Will you even put me in the wrong, God asks? Of course, the fault finder God is referring to is Job. Well, at this point, Job is overwhelmed by the Lord's blistering questions, wanting desperately for it to stop So he answers the Lord in 43 and 4. Behold, I am of small account. I'm I'm just a speck. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. So ironic. 
He who wanted his case for being treated unjustly, engraved on a rock forever in 1923 and 24, now wants everything he said to be erased. He wants to put his hand over his mouth and make it all go away. Isn't this the way it's going to be for many on that last day? The things God was saying were so striking, so shocking, so shattering for Job that he went quickly from desperately crying out to God to speak to desperately crying out to God to stop speaking. But the Lord wouldn't hear of it. He will not stop. He's not done yet. He's going to finish what he has to say. And in 40 verse 6, he answers Job again out of the whirlwind. And again he says, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you enlighten me with your answers. But this time he adds in verse 8, Job, will you condemn me so that you may be in the right? Do you have an arm like I do, Job? Can you thunder with a voice like mine? You want to be God, Job? Go ahead then, let's see you try. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out your anger until it overflows. Look on the proud and bring them low. Tread down the wicked, bury them all in the dust. Then will I also acknowledge you. And then this great speech of God ends with two long sections about two impressive but unknown to us creatures. Behemoth and Leviathan. Obviously, the original readers knew these creatures, but for us, it's not easy to figure out what specific animals they're being talked about or even if those animals still exist in our world. But God asks the same kinds of questions about them as he has about other things with the same kind of purpose. And that brings us to the end of God's speech and we're going to go a little farther and see how Job reacted to this in the beginning of chapter 42. And here, if we're going to understand this part, I have to do a little bit of explanation. Twice in Job's response, he quotes things that God had just said to him in his speech at the very beginning of his speech and then responds to them. So he's not saying these things, he's quoting these things and then responding. And in the overhead, the things that he's quoting that God said are underlined to make it clear for you. So Job 42, 1-6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Then the first quote. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? 
And Job responds, therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. In other words, I agree. I've talked about, I've said things I didn't know what I was talking about. I talked about things I know nothing about. Then verse 4, he quotes again, Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. And Job's response to that, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, especially since we're so influenced by the modern way of thinking about the person and the identity. When we hear a person say, I despise myself, our hearts go out to him and we feel sorry for him. But don't feel sorry for Job here. As a result of God's rebuke, Job has been transformed. He is more than ready now to accept the Lord's will. Not only in this circumstance, but in all the circumstances that are going to happen to him for the rest of his life. He repents of his grumbling. He now has the will to do and to accept God's will. He has repented. He is repenting. And repentance is a great place to be. It is the place of refreshment and new life and clarity. It's just where Job needed to be. Just really where he longed to be. He sees things clearly now. The cloud which has hidden his father's bright, shining face has disappeared. This not only restores his view of God, but now he sees God more clearly than ever before. So that he can say, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. He's longed for God to show up. And now he has. Job is humbled. But Job is also very grateful. Now, I have a few observations to share and a few applications and a few words about ostriches. First, a few observations. Clearly, God refuses to submit to human challenge. If anyone attempts to order God to answer their complaint, God just rejects the summons. He will not allow mere humans to sit in judgment over how he acts. He does not recognize their right to sit in judgment over him and his ways. The rightness of his actions does not depend on human acknowledgement. He does not need to prove the wisdom of his choices. He is accountable to no man. It's as if Job summons God to appear as a defendant, but instead God appears as the judge and orders Job to sit in the defendant's seat. By manifesting himself to Job in this way, 
He cuts Job to the heart for all his rash and impatient utterances about the way God had treated him. Job's pain had become more important to Job than God's glory. And that, even though it's understandable for sinners, that is idolatry. And so he needed to be rebuked. He needed to be humbled. He needed to be led to a frame of mind which is necessary for one who comes into relationship with a holy God. Now Job was a tough guy. He could handle this. He could dress for action like a man as God challenged him to do. But the fact is there are many who could not handle this. If God ever came to them and spoke this directly to them, they would be crushed. But the fact is, we all need to hear this. We all need the insight that's here. And so God graciously allows us to listen in to God's conversation with Job as if it's in the next room without it being directed directed directly to us. And so we get the benefit without the trauma. But in taking this approach, we have to understand that God is not just having a temper tantrum here. God is not even rescuing or vindicating himself. God is rescuing Job here. God's will does not need to be vindicated. But Job does need to be rescued from the self-destructive effects of human presumption. And so do we. God's rebuke to Job is not punitive. It's not born of wrath, but born of love. In God's words... Job recognizes the fatherly discipline that God gives to those whom he loves. Job's response is more than mere submission or surrender as you would to a tyrant who's mightier than you. Job's response is one of happy surrender and loving submission because he recognizes the love behind the rebuke. And now three applications. God is our friend. He, Jesus even said that. But sometimes we get too friendly with God. If you know what I mean. We forget that he's not our peer, though he is our friend. And in those times, God needs to remind us of who he is and who we are. And that's what he does here with Job. We see it in the life of Jesus. Several times he pulls rank on his own parents and reminds them who he is. That he's not just their little child. We need to be ready to recognize those times in our lives where God asserts 
his own will over against ours. We need to be ready, like Job, to put our hands over our mouths and take note of what God is doing. Now there's a time to keep silent and a time to speak. Sometimes we're tempted to keep silent when we ought to say something. But sometimes we ought to put our hand over our mouth and just be quiet. God had listened to enough of man's foolish wranglings. Do you recognize who I am? God gives us what we need, but he doesn't always give us what we want. One of the strangest things about this whole story of Job is that what God says in answer to Job has very little to do with the whole debate that the five men were having in the previous 35 chapters. Job has spent the whole book talking about how he wishes he could face God to get an answer as to why God has allowed him to suffer so intensely. And in Job's speeches, three things that he is crying out for and feeling like he needs. An explanation for his sufferings, comfort in the midst of his sufferings, and relief from his sufferings. But when God finally came to Job, he gave him something else entirely. God doesn't come with an apology. God doesn't come with expressions of sympathy. He doesn't come with an explanation of Job's sufferings. He doesn't come with anything that Job was looking for. But if we know God, this shouldn't surprise us. God ordinarily surprises. It's surprising when God doesn't surprise. Instead of answering or comforting or delivering, God basically says to Job, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Or to say to him, Why did you make this happen to me? Apparently, God isn't interested in vindicating his decision to allow Job's sufferings. It turns out that poor, suffering, miserable Job needed something else more than the things he felt like he needed. We often don't know what we really need. But God always knows what we need. And that means there are times when we feel like we need answers or comfort or relief. But God knows what we need is a good rebuke. Now, I'm not saying that's always the case. There are times when God knows we need comfort and he gives it. Praise be to God for that. You know... There's a fault finder in each one of us, ready to criticize even God sometimes, to correct him as if he's our child, to think 
which is so crazy, we don't ever admit it, but we think we're smarter than God. We know what's good. We know what we need. We know what our lives should be like. And he's not doing it. He's obviously not doing a good job ruling our lives. There's part of us which thinks our view of things is the right one, even if it contradicts God's. How hard it must be for God to listen to the things that come out of our mouths and the things that spin around in our heads. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me so that you may be in the right? As God listened to these men arguing, it seems like God heard something different than maybe we heard when we read it. It seems like he heard a lot of presumption, a lot of arrogance, a lot of impudence. It seems that God perceived that Job and his friends, probably too, were far too quick to think that they had everything figured out. They were too confident in their own opinions. And Job was willing to question God and to act as if he were God's judge. You know, there's a part of us that wants to be God. In fact, really that's the essence of sin. Wanting to be God. Every time we sin, we're putting ourselves in God's place. And we need to know this. And we need to work to check those satanic impulses in ourselves. We need to ask ourselves, who is God? Is it me? Or is it him? If you don't see a tendency to want to be God in yourself, then we need to insert your name above Job's in the list of the world's most righteous. And if I do see in myself a tendency to want to be God, then do I? Does that bother me? Do I put my hand over my mouth or the part of me that feels that way? Do I seek God's forgiveness with tears? Can we end this morning with ostriches? As proof of the fact that we are not reading here an outburst of divine anger merely, let's look at one thing God says in the middle of his long speech. As you know, it's about ostriches. As you know, the ostrich is a huge, peculiar-looking bird, up to nine feet tall. He has a small head attached to a large body by a long, skinny neck. And although it flaps its wings, it cannot fly. Instead of building a nest, the ostrich lays her eggs on the ground and then leaves them there to go off searching for food. 
seemingly oblivious to the danger that they might be trampled, and all her work will have been in vain. She seems to have no fear for their survival, as if she is callous and even cruel toward her young. Why does she act like this? God has made her to be a bird brain. And yet, when she runs from danger, she leaves the horse in her dust. Let me read to you Job 39, 13 to 18. The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear. That is for the welfare of her young. Because God has made her forget wisdom and give, given her no share in understanding. Bird brain. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. She zooms by, laughs at them as she goes by. Well, you know, this is the only section of, of all these amazing uh, questions that God gives to Job well, there's no question at all. There's no question. It's just statements of fact about ostriches. What is God's point? Well, it turns out that the God who speaks in the whirlwind and who shouts down even the most righteous of men when they dare to question his will is also the God of humor. It turns out that the God of the majestic and the fierce is also the God of the ridiculous. In the midst of this very heavy, intense confrontation, God throws in this comical section about the ostrich. Apparently, some of God's creatures were made for common for comic relief. What an amazing God we have. Jesus said he was gentle and lowly. How does that fit in with God's rebuke of Job? Well, is it possible that behind God's frowning rebuke, God hides a smiling face? I think so. Let us pray. Oh Lord, these are treasures that you have given us. And we are grateful for them. Oh Lord, help us to learn their lessons well. We put our hands over our mouths because we know that so many times, Lord, we have thought things and even uttered things that are so presumptuous and so arrogant and 
We have talked about things we know nothing about as if we are experts. Even to the point of judging you. We thank you, Lord, that out of your fatherly love, you set us straight. You remind us that you are the great I am who must not be questioned. You remind us, O Lord, that we must let God be true and consider every man a liar. Help us, O Lord, to be humble before you. And dear Lord, we thank you so much that even here where we see the fierce severity of your words to Job, we can see even here how great your love is for your people. And how you turned from this to bless Job and to defend him before his friends and to prosper him in his life. Oh Lord, you are a great God and a great Savior. It is our honor and privilege to worship you and trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.